Hello, and welcome to Ever Widening Circles podcast, designed to give you more joy, less fear, and no end to the evidence that a bright future is possible. This podcast will give you a fresh perspective on the world around you. We want you to hear from thought leaders in a wave of progress well underway around the globe that we're calling a conspiracy of goodness. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles. Since 2014, we have been changing the negative dialogue about our times by celebrating the insight and innovations that prove it is still an amazing world. And along the way, I've been having these amazing conversations with thought leaders that we are now sharing with you. Today, I'm going to chat with Daniel Kish. His name may ring a bell because Daniel has had so much media coverage that it's estimated his work has been seen by billions of people. And why the keen interest? Well, it's because Daniel is often referred to as the real Batman. He sees with echolocation a lot like bats see the world. And that's about as far as I'm going to go into this introduction because I love to have thought leaders introduce themselves. They always say so many extraordinary things that will bring questions up that I'm going to ask later. So Daniel, welcome to the Ever Widening Circles podcast. Introduce yourself. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure. I hate introducing myself in a way. I think the first thing I would say is that you mentioned the media coverage. Uh, if anyone if anyone throws my name into Google, Daniel Kish, you'll find out more about me than I myself know. So to curate that, I guess the simple answer is that I am known in part for having trained my brain to see, uh, despite that I haven't had eyes in my head since I was a year old. The eyes that are in my head now are, are artificial. So my eyes were removed at seven months and 13 months from a type of a cancer called retinoblastoma. And I just didn't stop moving and I didn't stop exploring or discovering. And we later found when we conducted the brain scan research that my brain and the brains of, of others of our students essentially repurpose the visual cortex to accept signals from other sensory channels and construct images from those signals. So, so effectively, we've tricked our brains into seeing even though our eyes don't work. Well, that whole repurposing thing is really, really important for people to understand. It's one of the first things I dove into when I met you. I'm going to tell people our, our meeting story, but the part of your, your brain that's devoted to sight is quite large, right, Daniel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's estimated that, that system occupies 40 to 80% of, of the brain, depending on who you ask and depending on what they include. But essentially, the brain is hugely dedicated to constructing images from our sensory experiences. But the misnomer here is that the term image is synonymous with visualization or vision. And that's the misnomer. That's, that's sort of the incorrect perspective to take on this. An image is simply the composite expression to the conscious mind of all of our sensory experiences and all of our ideas. All of those, all of those combine to form what I will call an image, which consists of a multiplicity of data, a multiplicity of information. So, for example, if I ask someone, you know, what do you think of when I, when I say the word porcupine? often people will respond with a kind of a tactile response, sharp. They have sharp quills. Everyone knows that a porcupine has sharp quills. Even if you conjure up an image, a visual image of a porcupine, it's a big, massive, you know, pin cushion with all the pins pointing the wrong way. So <laughs> that's kind of what we think of. And that, that aspect of ouch wouldn't it hurt to touch one of those or wouldn't it hurt to step on one of those or wouldn't it hurt to fall on one of those is inextricably part of the image. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, a, you know, you and I spent so much time on the phone together and I've never heard you put it quite that way. So the mental pictures we have, whatever the word picture means in that, are a construct of all kinds of information from all different parts of our body and senses. And your brain has made the most of that real estate, not let it just lie fallow. 
And that's what our brains do. They really make the most of real estate. And um, it's given you a, a different way of seeing, let's say, uh, quote unquote, the word seeing. They make the most of real estate if we make the most of real estate. Oh, boy, that's huge. So it is huge. And it is critical to understand while the brain is naturally predisposed to optimize itself, it is also predisposed to take the path of least resistance. It will do both. Um, and so for us to forge those connections, it doesn't matter what connections. For us to forge connections in our brain, those connections have to actually be used. We have to actually conduct energy actively through those connections. And so most blind people who do not have experiences self-navigating, self-guiding, managing themselves, managing their own affairs, establishing their own relationship with the world on their own terms, et cetera, et cetera. Most blind people who are not self-determined in this way do not develop these skills. Mm-hmm. So let me, um, let me back up just a little bit for folks. So if you haven't seen Daniel's work and experienced the, the, the wonder of watching him operate in the world, um, there's a fabulous video uh, Daniel, make sure I have this right. Is it by ABC Science, the Australian broadcast company, ABC Science? Yeah, it's ABC Science. If, it, generally, if they type in um, Daniel Kish, Catalyst, the word Catalyst. Catalyst is the name of the program. Uh-huh. So it was, I, I believe the program has, has stopped running, but it was um, essentially our version of, of NOVA. Right. Quite highly respected in Australia. And they did do a very comprehensive documentary on our work in 2016. It's 22 minutes for me when I saw that piece. It it literally kicked down the door on what I thought was possible and impossible, how I define those two words. It's, it's an incredible piece. Yeah, and they just start right off. Is that the piece where you're literally walking down a neighborhood sidewalk, describing the height of the bushes, how far the houses are back? They they took me to a neighborhood I'd not I'd not been to before, and they asked me to essentially find my way around the neighborhood and describe what was around me as I moved through it. And then I also drew or sketched onto a pad of paper what I was seeing through this, through this method. Correct. So first of all, gosh, if you want a little wonder in your life, that's a great one to look up. But I wanted to go there just to give people the scope of what we're talking about, because folks who haven't run into your work or, you know, like everything, some media on the Internet treats this like a circus thing. Um, And you and I have many conversations about that. But what we want to do today is really explore what your work can teach us all. Because Daniel is doing, uh, is makes some observations about things like progress or fear or how we understand each other. We've had so many incredible conversations. Daniel was one of the very first people to be kind to me when I was first starting Ever Widening Circles. I remember a really snowy night here in Vermont when I somehow got your phone number and you answered your own phone and we talked for three hours. Do you remember that night, Daniel? Yes. Oh, yes. He was so, so kind. He was one of the first really, really unique and and very successful influencers of the world that was kind enough to talk to me at length and has always been an inspiration. And we became friends pretty darn fast. And um, so we're both on a journey to make the world a little better place. Daniel, with his work with an organization he started called World Access for the Blind, And as I mentioned, he travels the world alone, teaching other people how to do this remarkable bit of navigation just for themselves. And Daniel, can we have a conversation about this term you've used with me from time to time about borrowing other people's eyes? Can you kind of go into what what the alternative to what you do is? Well, the traditional kind of accepted assumed approach around blindness. And of course, you know, this this varies. I mean, you go to a thousand different doctors, for example, and you get a thousand different kinds of treatments. But we can say that medical practice falls along certain lines. For a long time, 
chiropractics wasn't accepted, right? For a long time, acupuncture wasn't accepted. It was poo-pooed. Now it is more widely accepted. But different doctors always had different levels of acceptance in and of themselves. It only became a matter of time before the profession became more and more open. And, and such is the case with what I will call the blindness field. So we have a blindness field, which is sort of this broad thing. And then we have the orientation and mobility field, which is a subset of the blindness field. The assumption and, and indeed the reality that is associated with blindness is lack of mobility. It is, you know, one way of very, very simply characterizing blindness is a difficulty in finding things. Finding things is certainly much more of a challenge. So governing your own interaction with your environment as a blind person without presumably knowing what's around you, what's ahead of you, where to go, what to do, how to get there. All of those things are associated with blindness and not untruthfully. There's a degree of truth to this and also falsehood, because the misunderstanding here is that Yes, if you are newly blind or you're born blind or, you know, at, at whatever point you go blind, you are facing uh, that challenge. So the question or the, well, yeah, the question and the issue is, isn't, oh my gosh, you're blind, you're facing that challenge. That's, that's, that's sort of a problem-oriented approach. The solution-oriented approach is to say, blindness is a challenging condition and here are the challenges to that condition then how do we address that condition how do we adapt to that condition how do we restore a person's ability to find things how do we restore a person's ability to be mobile to to self-navigate or to be self-determined in the way one gets around and how one gets around and where one gets around so traditionally the Approaches to this have been what I would call highly sight-centric. The idea being, if you've lost sight, if you've lost vision, the most expedient way of recovering from lost vision is to is to <laughs> to find vision. You know, to recover vision, to get vision somehow, get yourself back into the sighted stream of things or sighted flow of things, because without sight, you're just not going to be able to function the way people with sight function. Now, that is a really big nuance, Daniel. I've never thought of it that way. So the first thing that happens is we start optimizing towards getting people back to having sight. Get people back to having sight or get people into the sighted flow. Um, okay. Yeah. Get someone who is sighted, who can impart visual information to you. You're lacking visual information. You need visual information to function. Get access to that visual information somehow. That can be through a person, through a dog guide. It can be through, you know, all kinds of, of surgeries and, and, you know, other possible remedies around restoring or preserving sight. And even in the profession that teaches blind people how to move around using a white cane, the ethos remains quite strongly sight-centric. So it means that you need a sighted person to orient you as a blind person to a new environment or a new place, because presumably you as a blind person wouldn't be able to do that or wouldn't be able to do that safely. Uh, I, I think of the three um, C, S-E-E, -E, security, efficiency, and effectiveness. So if you're going to be secure, efficient, and effective, traditionally vision is thought to be the best way to do that. So if you're in a new place and you're not as a blind person able to function in that new place, to establish your own relationship to that new place, you need a sighted person to help you do that. Or you need a sighted person to guide you through it or you need a sighted person to facilitate your interaction with the environment in some way, shape, or form. So that's conventionally what we've always seen, right? When somebody is going onto the stage, they have a sighted person on their arm and walks them out into the middle of the stage. Typically they will, typically they will, or getting around, you know, a train station or an airport or, or pretty, much any, pretty much any unknown, untraveled, unfamiliar place. Uh, it's, it's presumed that you'd have a sighted person either with you or you would have been introduced to that environment by a sighted person. And, and other things, 
you know, other ways of, so, so the profession of orientation and mobility was essentially developed in the beginning of time by sighted people for blind people. And it was assumed uh, that, that blind people would learn as much as a blind person could learn under this sort of um, site centric model. And I am simplifying it. I mean, it, you know, it's yes. more, it's more nuanced than that, right? but that's basically kind of how it works. And so, our approach, I feel, looks at a much more self-determined approach because it challenges the brain to recruit the whole visual system, which is a substantial portion of the brain, into this process of being able to find things and being able to find one's way and being able to to establish one's relationship on one's own terms and being able to really do a lot more of one's own uh, perceptual capacity to interact with the environment. That is not to say, that is not to say that you're, that you're giving up anything, right? Because you can, you know, you can still receive assistance or support or a guide or, you know, or whatever, all of those things just really become part of what is now a much larger, I would argue, a much larger, more adaptive, flexible, integrated approach. Because now if you receive support or assistance of some kind, it's much more of a choice, first of all, than a necessity. And it can be done in a much more self-determined way because you have choices. Well, I'll tell you, I'm watching you. I have to say, um, Daniel and I are recording this audio, but we're actually um, able to um, record the video too. And I'm watching all you walking around all this time. He's walking around his own backyard. I see a beautiful eucalyptus tree keep passing over you. It's really, really an inspiring thing to think about how profound that last point you made is, is that there was a problem, loss of sight in a world that requires sight usually to navigate. And then there's the solution where as fast as you can restore sight somehow. But this problem that you've solved, it has another solution which is to incorporate all the other senses to give you a different set of information that you can get a good outcome with. It's to capitalize on this huge capacity of the human brain to adapt and to rewire itself, to reconnect itself. I mean, look, you've got, by whatever way you choose to measure it, the visual brain is immense. It's huge. And it's, it's, and it's very well connected to the rest of the brain. So why not use it? You know, a central uh, axiom of neurology, of neuroscience is use it or lose it. Yeah. So these blind folks, you know, who have fewer opportunities or who've had less experience with this idea of self-determination, I call it self-determined freedom. So, you know, it's your own freedom to achieve uh, what you wish, how you wish. And that's, much more challenging when you have fewer options available to you and when you're on someone else's dime, so to speak, you know, when you're functioning strictly under someone else's power, then it's much harder to step into one's own power or share one's power with others. So, um, so that's kind of the idea uh, behind all of this. So essentially there's so many things I want to ask you to, and share with others. So essentially this is, Instead of incremental problem solving, this is a really big picture. Look at all the options available. And one of them is to just recruit a whole lot of things that our brain is capable of doing and meet the problem with that. The real problem was immobility, isolation, marginalization. I mean, blind people are routinely subject to that. They're routinely subject to being isolated or marginalized, to not being allowed or barred from participation in the full breadth of community goods, services, and companionship. It's just kind of a chronic problem. That's the problem. And that problem is exacerbated by a lack of self-determination that many blind people feel and many blind people experience. And that in particular is driven home 
by a lack of freedom to move and to exercise one's choices, one's own choices over one's own life and livelihood. Right. So let's get into a question that our engineer here, Brittany, had, which I think a lot of people would wonder. So you're navigating the world with this new combination of uh, this new combination of ways to use a brain. Can sighted people learn to do this? That we had this lovely little conversation right before we started recording. Share those insights with us again, because I think it's a wider world insight that's a, an aha moment. So here's the thing. Here's how our work pertains to sighted people. So the short answer is that what we teach ranges far beyond just just echolocation, which is to say it's not first and foremost the ability to repurpose your brain to see with your ears, but it is first and foremost a way of repurposing your brain. And so when we draw a sighted person through our program, they learn an awful lot about repurposing their brain, not necessarily to the echolocation process per se, but their visual experience does become um, much richer and they learn to visualize more clearly and to connect that whole visualization process, the imaging process, if you will, to things like creativity and innovation, which are which are two big things. They're big things that people like to address. And also the other thing is self-assurance, self-confidence, security is a big part of, of what people enjoy in life. And so it brings us to a couple of things. The first is is how people learn. And people basically need three things to master a skill. They need motivation. Sighted people are inherently less motivated to learn echolocation, but they may be very motivated to improve their capacity to visualize or their capacity to apply their brains to other kinds of, uh, of purposes. The second is regular opportunity for practice or application. So if you think of learning a foreign language, got to be motivated, got to practice it regularly. Necessity is what drives learning. Need is what drives learning. The need isn't there. However, if you have or want a life or have or want a lifestyle that benefits from being able to use our brains more effectively, that benefits from being able to gain more management over how we use our brains, then yes, our approach definitely is helpful to sighted people. And the third is challenging circumstances. It's tempering the skill by subjecting it to challenging circumstances. So in other words, doing things that are more and more challenging, doing things that are that are harder and harder. And and that's what refines a skill. And the same is true with with uh, you know developing the capacity to sort of repurpose one's brain. And that's the neurology behind what we teach. The psychology behind what we teach is is every bit as important though. What lies at the kernel, I think, of adapting to blindness. Okay, so it's adapting to blindness. It's not just being blind, it's adapting to blindness, meaning that you essentially mastered your capacity, uh, your capacities as a, as a person, as a blind person. A central aspect of that is essentially neutralizing fear <laughs> because what we're really talking about is our relationship with the unknown. It's about how we relate to the unknown. Blindness is thought to personify the unknown. Well, the unknown, I believe, fear of the unknown is man's most primal fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of the dark. We tend to equate those things, dark, unknown, and then as a blind person, you you sort of are darkness personified. You are the unknown personified, which I believe is a fear that lies at the root of all of our fear. So, so I think that's one of the reasons why historically cultures have had such a struggle with blindness and with blind people is because it presses <laughs> our deepest fear buttons. Oh, no kidding. This is so true. Okay, I want to pause just for a second to uh, let people know that one of the earliest conversations Daniel and I ever had was about fear. Actually, I think, Daniel, it started with fear of the dark. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, had this, I had this epiphany. Of course, it was the, <laughs> the epiphany of a simpleton. Just for the record. 
<laughs> well, we are all simpletons here and there, aren't we? I was talking to Daniel one night about fear of the dark, and I had this epiphany that, oh, goodness, that that is such a construct because... Oh, I was walking. I was walking in the dark. I think I was I was walking. We were doing one of our telephone conversations, and I, I did what I normally do is I pace. Yes. Yes, that's it. Yeah, it was, it was in the winter, and it was around nine in the evening or something. You, you'd ask something about lighting or something yeah. about being out after dark. Yeah. And I realized that for Daniel, like even one night we talked when you were hiking back from your cabin oh, yeah. in the dark, yeah. I realized it was like my time, one o'clock in the morning and your time, nine o'clock at night, it must've been pitch black. And then, you know, there's this moment when you go, wait, you know, darkness is, is also a construct of our brain. It is. And how we respond to darkness is a construct. I mean, look, there are, there are always real, reality is reality. You know, if you're fun- if you're used to functioning with your eyes and all of a sudden it goes dark, of course, of course, you're going to struggle to function. That's absolutely understandable. It's not to be criticized or critiqued. It, it is what it is. OK. However, if you have to live like that, then you it doesn't behoove you to remain in that place of fear and vulnerability. That makes no sense at all. You, you simply must journey through and beyond that in order to preserve your own life and livelihood and and freedom uh, as a as a person so the part where we get stuck is the part where we just sort of assume that this is likeness the eight billion sighted people who exist on this planet all assume that this is blindness that blindness is simply a lack of of eyesight and because people equate eyesight to life and livelihood, to freedom, to independence, to dignity, to all things positive and, you know, pretty much no things negative, then blindness is seen, is misunderstood as the antithesis or contrast to all of that. And it really isn't. Once you've adapted to blindness, it really isn't. So central to adapting is simply neutralizing fear of the unknown. You simply kind of don't have fear of the unknown anymore. That's such a really powerful insight for our times right now. I don't want to go past that. I want to stick there for a second in our conversation. So right now, um, at the day of this recording, it's right at the end of August in 2020, and we are going through the throes of the pandemic still, an ongoing pandemic that's now six months old or so. We, we have a lot of racial tension in our country that is escalating every day. We have a political election coming up that's full of turmoil. I mean, there is a lot of darkness and a lot of fear about the unknown from all sides of the political persuasion, all sides of the racial divides, all sides of anybody who cares about not getting COVID or cares about a loved one who might get it. So we are living with the unknown. I, let's let's stay here for just a minute and let's talk about this fear of the unknown and, and exactly what your insights can help us with understanding how you move past it. Again, I think the beginning of it is motivation. Do you even want to? You know, do you even, even think it's possible? If you think it's possible, do you want to? Is it feasible for you? Is it worth taking the trouble? Is it worth shifting our perspective? Because whatever we do takes work. Now, that investment pays off in that once you've withdrawn your energy from things like basically energy suckers, fear, anxiety, apprehension, self-doubt. Constantly checking the news. I mean, it's even the physical things that we do. Right. Even bewilderment, you know, bewilderment is a part of that as well. All of those things really suck up a lot of energy. So, you know, it may take some work to repurpose our brain, to, to repattern our thoughts and emotions, to essentially put a big question mark over all fear, essentially. Right. Habit, it becomes a, just a, another pattern. And then fear essentially gives way to relaxed vigilance. It, be, it may give way to caution. It gives way to finding things out. So, you know, discovery, a knee-jerk reaction to, oh my God, what are the facts? What really is going on here? What is the logic behind what is happening or what might happen or what's about to happen? Okay. So 
just to break that down before we move on to the next step, the first is, you know, all these choices about what you're going to give your mental chatter to. If you're going to give it to all those hopeless emotions that you described, or I can imagine even with blindness, there there could be a lot of time spent in self-pity or or all kinds of things. But you're suggesting that that at the bottom line, anytime we, we take on our fears, we're going to have to decide how motivated we are to actually change. How motivated are we to actually change? Yes. Hey, everyone. Dr. Linda here. I wanted to let you know that we just released my book, Happiness is an Option. In the book, I share insights you can use immediately to thrive in the era of the internet. Life is too short. What we are seeing on the internet, social media, and the news is only a slice of reality. But there are four simple shifts you can make to start seeing the rest of the story. And that story can send you soaring every day. The book is available online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or by going to the website for the book, happieroption.com. So thanks so much for supporting us this way too. Okay. So what's the second thing then? Okay. So if we decide, no, we can't stand the negative dialogue of our times and what so many people tell me about their fear of the future in, in our times, Daniel, is that they just turn off the news. They've just turned off the news and instantly that's their reaction. And I, that always makes me cringe a little bit because I think not knowing about the world is probably just a different kind of darkness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I think one of the things is suspending everything we think we we know and rethinking what we think we know, because this idea of attaching ourselves to the familiar means the dichotomy of that is avoiding or being apprehensive about the unfamiliar, i.e. the unknown. And so we tend to wall ourselves up into boxes of known and never really look toward the unknown. And then when we're invariably confronted with the unknown, we don't know what to do. What sighted people do is they just install another light. You know, whenever there's a dark patch, we install another light or we bring a flashlight. We never really learn to develop a healthy relationship with darkness. So okay. one way of doing that is is to establish so maybe that's step number two is, is suspending everything you think you know. That's what I do. You're going to look really hard at your assumptions. You look really hard at your assumptions, challenge your assumptions, because they're probably wrong. I mean, we <laughs> cannot assume that we that we have all the right assumptions about everything. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. So by challenging our assumptions, what do we open ourselves up to understanding? What do we open ourselves up to then know, which sort of brings us to the next step, which is establishing what we actually do know. What do we actually know about the situation we're in? Okay, so we're suspending everything we think we know, and thereby we are suspending a negative reaction to the unknown. So essentially making yourself okay with it. Now, what do we know? What points of reference can we establish based on what we do know? Because there are things we do know. Um, And we can extrapolate uh, a course of action between having a friendly relationship or embracing, if you will, the unknown, but also, also doing it from a perspective of knowledge that there are things that we do know that we can use to start to chart our way through the way ancient sailors did across, you know, the vast oceans. So what you're suggesting in teaching others is that, yeah, you think you want to scramble back on that rock where you can see using the eyes of others or a a dog or whatever, but you're suggesting we should if we get the, our feet knocked out from under us, we should be willing to scramble up onto a new rock that may hold the, a whole world of possibilities for us. A new rock or a new tree you've never climbed or, or 
maybe you've never climbed before. Right. And, you know, you may just assume that you can't climb or you assume that climbing isn't useful or you assume that no matter how, how high you get, you won't see what you want. Or you can make any number of assumptions about climbing, many of which are probably wrong. And so once you do climb something, you open yourself into finding things out that you would not otherwise have. Now, you've told me before and related to that exact topic, I mean, you've taught 70-year-olds how to do this. Is that correct? Well, my personal oldest was 83. <laughs> so back to our original question 15 minutes ago, you know, can ordinary people learn to do this? I'm assuming this was may have been somebody who lost their sight late in life, a macular degeneration or something like that. This person had only been black blind, as he put it, for three months. Uh-huh. Interesting. Wow. So he was willing to apply these first two things. He had a real drive to learn. Or he or she, I can't recall. Um, uh, he, he, yeah, yeah. And and he probably had, was at an age and stage where he could find a lot of practice. Mm-hmm. And right. he must have been open enough to challenge his assumptions and just dive in, right? He had a challenging circumstance if he was sighted his whole life. If they're self-taught, then they're self-driven. They basically you know, kind of take themselves through these steps on their own. Um, others may have to be coached through or mentored through, which is sort of sort of our role when we when we come in to work with clients, whether those clients are blind uh, or families of blind people. Yeah. So, okay. So these are obviously life skills that we can all use. And what you're doing is posing a big giant question for us all. What are we assuming are obstacles in our own life? What do we have at our disposal that might be useful that we're not tapping into yet? So tell me a little bit more about your work with folks who you are sharing this knowledge with. What does it look like to describe somebody maybe young and maybe somebody older? I I assume you're working with people all over the world of all different life situations. What does it actually look like? Well, yeah, we work with a lot of kids and we've had thousands of students. Each story is different. Often the example that comes to mind is a boy with whom we worked in Mexico. His name was also Daniel Daniel. And he was 10 when we first started working with him. We worked with him off and on for two years. Uh, He was hit by a gas truck when he was six and was totaled basically by this collision. He was hit on his bike and he was just run over. And he spent, uh, I'm told, 48 hours in surgery where they put him back together, but his optic nerve had been ripped from his eyeballs and basically that couldn't be repaired. So blind overnight. And he was one of these kids, very, very sharp, very bright, just just a special kid and and had a special place in the community. Uh, this was in deep Mexico. Community is very strong there. And he was the bright star. He was the one that everyone wanted to be around. He was the one that everyone looked to. He was, you know, the, the interest of, of all of his peers until he went blind. And then all of that flipped. He just basically fell from the top rung to the bottom rung of the totem pole. So by the time we got to him four years later, he was he was both angry and bewildered. Interesting, because I had sensed, not knowing him when he was younger, I sensed that that wasn't his nature. I mean, his natural personality was pretty gleeful, you know, and pretty delighted and really quite bright of character and quality. So when we began working with him, one of the things we do as part of our training is some, some sports training. And in, in Mexico, the thing is soccer. So we put the ball into a plastic bag, which is a cheap and easy way of making a a soccer ball very, very audible. We, of course, taught him echolocation and we taught him, uh, you know, how how to capitalize on that. And he soaked that up like a sponge. And so within within days, he he had begun just dominating uh, the soccer field. What? How nice. With the addition, I don't want to get past that. With the addition of a plastic bag around the ball, he could he he knew where it was. Yes, so he knew where the ball was, okay. and then you put a sound or something on the goal area, and so he knew where to aim the ball. And he also played goalie, so he knew how to, to field the ball. 
but we had to uh, pretty quickly him only playing with adults because he was too um, hard on the, on the other kids. So then, uh, but then after that, uh, we came back a year later, and he'd he'd applied himself to playing with sighted kids. So I mean, you know, he didn't go to a school for the blind or anything. He went to a regular school. And so by the third year, you know, really quite remarkable. He was 12 and, you know, his whole standing in the community had changed. His whole, everyone's approach to him had changed. He was the one that people wanted on their team. He was the one that people came to for answers in class. They were calling him circus clown. They were no longer calling him circus clown. So, you know, all of that changed. And what really sticks in my mind from that whole experience wasn't actually so much the fact that he could clean up the, the field, but there was one point where he was playing with the neighborhood kids. This was informal soccer. It's basically street soccer. And he was playing, and the, the bag was getting really ratted. You know, it was just getting really torn and eventually fell off the ball and gave up the ghost. And he just continued playing. So, you know, he, he'd gotten so good that he could play tolerably well even without the bag and so we were and he was and at some point a boy had come up to the fence and uh had then left he left on his bicycle came back with a, with a plastic bag and he shoved it through the fence you know so he he had taken it on himself without even saying anything to anyone uh, this bag had broken and so he rode home, grabbed another bag, came back, shoved it through the fence, and Daniel resumed playing, you know, with this bag. Uh, and it was all done very casually. There was no fanfare about it. it. It just happened almost as a natural course or a natural flow. And for me, you know, an act like that could seed a world. If I wanted to, if I wanted to build a new universe... <sighs> I might start with, with, an, uh, with that as its seed. Yes, because to me, that's really what what community is all about. Is I don't know how other people define that. There are lots of definitions of community. That to me is what community is about. It is that is such a great story, and also what self determination is about. Because you you have a boy named Daniel who's extremely self determined. And you have him growing, functioning, contributing, participating in the context of an entirely inclusive um, community. Right. I mean, that's that's the wholeness of possibility here in that one little story. It's about dignity. It's about others feeling connected to something bigger than themselves. It's about the things we have in common. It's about, oh, there's so many things in that story. So I can tell from just that one story that we have to continue this as a much broader conversation. And I think we're off on a, a, a little journey together here that we will share with people over time, Daniel. We're right at, at about 50 minutes, 5-0 here. And I want to, I don't want to run out of time to ask you how people can help. So the gist of this is that you have this organization, the World Access for the Blind, that is available and ready. You have other people on your team that are ready to teach folks that, are, that have um, visually impaired this new way of using their brain. We've served directly um, over 40 countries doing professional development workshops, doing training with individuals, teaching blind instructors. And our aim is to develop really a, a two-pronged academy, which would include a brick-and-mortar academy, uh, a vision academy, where people could actually go and receive training, but also a virtual component which would reach a, a wider range of people virtually. And then, of course, an outreach component, which is part of the physical component, where we continue to go to people where people are and continue to work with them. And for all of that, we, we need resources. We need capital to pull that off, uh, the capital to build, 
the capital to establish and the capital to put in place all of the instructional protocols and assessment protocols that are needed for a, a, a venture like this. And so donations are hugely important, right? So anyone who kind of has a, an idea that they can provide any of those resources or potentially connect us with uh, any of those resources would be would be great. Great. Because, you know, I don't think um, of all the thought leaders I talk to, you know, resources are the bottom line. Now, most of us are constantly under siege with asks for funding and donations and things. And I think this is part of the conspiracy of goodness. One of the things we've learned with things like crowdsourcing funding and Patreon and all these um, wonderful different new mechanisms in the last decade is that, you know, we can we can double down on the things that we really love that inspire us. And you've got such a great project like this that who knows what we can learn from. We haven't even talked about the science, Daniel. Next time we're going to talk, we're going to talk about the science because we are right at the precipice of neuroscience and brain science that what Daniel is doing could so inform so many aspects of what we're learning about the brain. So that's a whole nother conversation. But as far as researchers go, donations are huge. And really, as you were saying there, connections are huge too. Yes. Yeah, I mean, um, we're all just ordinary people. Daniel, me, uh, Ben Kennard from Five North Chocolate, who I just got off a, a podcast interview with. We are all ordinary people who saw a problem and realized a solution, and we're out there. And so, you know, contact Daniel if you have ideas, if you had connections, if you have funding ideas, he will be happy. He's the nicest person I've ever talked to. And he'll be happy to chit chat with you. I'm not kidding. <laughs> we have, we have talked about just about everything under the sun over time. And we're going to finish and, and not, not finish, but continue this conversation going forward and over the next couple months. So Daniel, you know, just a part of the conspiracy of goodness is sharing that people like Daniel Kish exist and that world access for the blind exists you can share that his work on social media and you never know who it might land on who really needs the kind of help that Daniel is doing with this important work will change their life for sure. So Daniel, I can't thank you enough. You know, do you ever have anything that you just, that just lights up your life? I always, the last question I always ask everybody is what goes on for you every day or periodically that proves it's still an amazing world. Well, I work with people of all ages, and I enjoy working with people of all ages. The thing that floats my boat is is watching people grow into their best selves, into their greater freedom, particularly children. Uh, that's what really lights me up is working with children. And when children start to grow out of their own fiber, not just not just into the molds that we as adults feel. Uh, inclined to constrain them in or by, but actually growing of themselves and growing into their best selves and growing into their into their greater freedom. That's what makes the world a brighter place for me. Oh, that is so that is so so true. Um, the particular alchemy in each of us can change the world. I I know that. The more we bring it out the better off the whole world is. So thank you so, so, so much for your phenomenal work. Also, I want to add that Daniel is an amazing public speaker. And I suspect that his pub public speaking has supported his great work in the world too. If you want to see a TED Talk that will make your heart sore, look up Daniel Kish's TED Talk. It's it, Have you done more than one? What's, how, what's the quickest way people get to your TED Talk? Daniel Kish TED Speaker will pull, up, uh, <laughs> will pull up the main stage talk, but it will also pull up some TEDx talks that I've done as well. And I also did Pop Tech and some other public speaking. And I've done a fair bit of corporate speaking. And we enjoy extending our offering into those arenas because, A, people benefit from those arenas. We, we get, we get a, a great deal of positive feedback from that. Uh, but also, these are arenas we would like to see more blind people become a part of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we feel it very, very much 
an important part of our work to extend our message into those arenas. Absolutely. Well, uh, I think what's going to bring us forward into a new era is getting as many voices, lovely, measured, thoughtful, helpful voices with fresh perspectives out on the table. And you've certainly shared one with us today. So for more information, you can look up World Access for the Blind and you can contact Daniel directly. As always, dive into the ever-widening circles universe by visiting us at ewc.co, everwideningcircleswc.co. And if you want to become an ever-widening circles insider uh, and start your day with the insights that will leave you with more joy and less fear and a lot more evidence about a bright future that's possible, subscribe to the Ever Widening Circles app. <laughs> we have some uh, some people we work with, and, and uh, Mike is one of the best darn supporters of our app, and he always says it's the best $1 a month you will ever spend in your lifetime. And I don't feel ashamed to say that. The Ever Widening Circles app is, is $1 a month to access all the insight and innovation that is not reaching the top of the internet and our awareness. And if you want to support Everwinding Circles and keep insight and innovation at the top of mind, please support people like Daniel, like the kind of people we're interviewing on this podcast, because that's why we're here. We're here to celebrate their work and how they can influence the future for us all. Feel free to review and rate this podcast on the Apple Store as well. It's a great way to help other people find the podcast too. I hope these insights carry you through your week. We will see you again next week with more insight and innovation. And it is still an amazing world. Thanks. For more information about our guests' work or the subjects we mentioned, check out the show notes for the links. And as always, dive into the ever-widening circles universe by visiting us at ewc.co. That's short for ever-widening circles, ewc.co. If there are students in your life, turn them loose on the education site that we have at Everwinding Circles. You can find that at ewced.com. And subscribe to the Everwinding Circles app. People are always asking me what they can do to help. This is the number one thing you can do to help our efforts. For less than a dollar a month, you will have the antidote to the daily news right in the palm of your hand with our app. And that $1 will help us send a signal to content creators that people will support positive content. And big news, <laughs> we will be hosting the first Conspiracy of Goodness Summit on October 4th. You can get tickets to that and be able to enjoy the recorded program thereafter at cogsummit.com. Cog is short for Conspiracy of Goodness. C-O-G Summit, S-U-M-M-I-T dot com. I hope all these connections to goodness and progress carry you through your week and you start finding all that joy and wonder we've been talking about.